This Security Ledger podcast is sponsored by LastPass. For more than 47,000 businesses of all sizes, LastPass reduces friction for employees while increasing control and visibility for IT with an access solution that's easy to manage and effortless to use. From single sign-on and password management to adaptive authentication, LastPass gives superior control to IT and frictionless access to users. Check it out at lastpass.com. Hello and welcome to the Security Ledger Podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, the Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this episode of the podcast, number 164. Like if you think about it, the passwords aren't going away. They will always be around. But having a password manager that also tightly combines with an SSO platform so you can have everything in one place, like almost like a universal dashboard of your passwords and single sign-on, that's, that's where people we see starting to move. Passwords aren't going away. And while they're around, they have the potential to cause real problems problems for organizations. That's one conclusion of LastPass's third annual State of the Password report, which came out this week. Poor password habits like password reuse and sharing between accounts are still common, LastPass found. In our second segment, we talk with Dan DeMichael of LastPass's parent company, LogMeIn, about why. But first... You should be able to decide where your car sends that data and how it's used. Maybe you have a favorite repair shop, or maybe you can use the information to maintain your car yourself. If you don't have the data, you can't make that choice. That's not right. What can we do? The same technology that makes it possible for you to load up Spotify or Waze on your drive-in to work is helping auto manufacturers monitor everything about your car, from the performance of your engine and brakes to how and where you drive and even whether you've gained weight. You create the data, referred to as telematics in the automotive industry, using your own vehicle. But is that data yours? or the car makers? The answer, for now, is buried in the small print of a licensing agreement you probably signed without reading when you purchased the vehicle. The question of who owns the telematic data your car generates isn't just a brainy legal dispute. Access to vehicle data is critical to performing maintenance on the car and fixing problems when they arise. But automakers are often unwilling to share the data with vehicle owners, let alone independent auto repair shops that compete with their own dealerships and license repair facilities. That's created a battle over telematics data that parallels the ongoing fight to win a digital right to repair. To understand the issue around vehicles and vehicle data a bit better and get caught up on where things stand, we invited Aaron Lowe, the Senior Vice President for Government Affairs at the Auto Care Association, into our studio. The Auto Care Association has launched a new campaign called Your Car, Your Data, Your Choice to highlight the issue around car data ownership. In this conversation, Aaron and I talk about the competitive as well as privacy and security implications of automakers harvesting and even reselling the reams of telematic data they're collecting from customers and vehicles. Sure, Aaron Lowe, and I'm Senior Vice President of Government Affairs for the Auto Care Association. So we're a national trade group. We represent manufacturers, distributors, retailers, and installers of um, automotive parts 
And our members are, um, they, they service the independent part of the market. So they're not related to the vehicle manufacturers. They compete with the manufacturers both on the service side and also in the selling parts for uh, vehicles. In the United States, about 70% of car owners go to independent shops um, and use independently produced parts after their new car warranty expires. And we're talking to you because Auto Care Association is part of an effort, along with the Automotive Aftermarket Suppliers Association, to raise awareness about ownership issues around car data. And I guess one thing to talk about before we get into that is the fact that cars these days collect a tremendous amount of data. So why don't we why don't we talk first about this car data? What I think most people assume that the, the data that their car is collecting is mostly about engine performance and braking and stuff like that. But you make the point that there's a lot more that modern vehicles are collecting and um storing and relaying to the manufacturer? Yeah, the, the um, a connected car today transmits about 25 gigabytes of data per hour. And we estimate that by 2022, 80%, 87% of new cars will have connected technology. And you're, you're correct. It was, uh, a lot of people may assume that it's just um, how the car is operating, but actually a vehicle can collect data on how much you weigh because there are sensors in the seat. They can know your geolocation data, where you go every day, um, and they can they can collect a huge amount of personal information on uh, what you do and where you go and um, how you operate your vehicle, how you drive it. So it's not just the actual engine, whether you have a diagnostic code, but it's it's every but a lot of things beyond that. So it collects this data. Obviously, these these cars don't have huge storage capacity for this data. So so what's happening to it? It's being generated, and then where does it go? It goes to the manufacturer. The manufacturer collects all this data, and they are the only ones that they control where it goes. So they use some of the data um, for their own product development, um, but they also have the ability to sell that data to other groups that might need it or might want it, including possibly the insurance industry. So it's basically, you know, some of it's anonymized, um, but they do have the ability to sell data based on your car itself, based on the VIN number, so they know who you are. Um, and, and, you know, they know the, 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 the ability or the sign-off by the motorist is piled in the, in the middle of a lot of other documents, yeah. and most motorists really have no idea of the type of data that's being collected or how it may be used. So when they sign that form, sometime when they buy that new car, most of them don't understand the implications or how little, much little, how little control they have of what happens to that data once it leaves their car. Yeah, I mean, this is going to be familiar to anybody who's ever, you know, bought software. Right? Is you know, you go to install it and you get that, you know, end user license agreement screen that is a huge legal document that's you know maybe hundreds of pages long. And you kind of scroll to the bottom of it and click, I agree or I accept or whatever. Um, is, is that basically what's happening with cars or is this actually part of the purchase of the vehicle where you're um, signing a document, signing away your rights to your data? Yeah, every manufacturer does it differently, but it, it's part of the sign-off when you when you buy the car. And, and I think that it's usually most people don't even know they signed it um, when they're done. And 
we did some polling that showed that the vast majority of, of the motoring public has very little idea that, first of all, their car collects as much data as it does, and then how little control they have of it. Um, I think they think that uh, they have some control, but really they don't have any control over that data. And unlike other devices where you, every time you, um, you use it, you could, you could shut off some of the data collection capabilities, you really don't have that opportunity with the motor vehicle. It's, it just happens when you, when you drive the car. So you have, not only do you not know it, but you have very little control of it when you're driving it. What if you just say, well, I don't agree to that. I'm buying a car and I'm happy to give you my money, but I don't agree to this license agreement about the handling of the data. Yeah, that's the rub. I mean, the question is, there's really not much of a way to shut that off. So (laughs) you really don't have a lot of choice if you want to buy that car. Then is it really a contract, though? I mean, if it's if you have no ability to say no to it, then then you can't then you're not really consenting, are you? That's a good point. (laughs) <laughs> one that we agree with. So we, we believe that really, and, and our whole goal is that it's not so much that this data couldn't have good use, and there's a lot of ways that, that it could help serve the consumer better, but there needs to be both better transparency and then also more control of that data so that they the motorist is really the one at, or the owner of that vehicle is at the center of the equation, not the motor vehicle manufacturer. Talk just about this data that is um, collected by the vehicles in the hands of an owner or an independent repair shop. Um, how might that data be used? What value does it have? Well, to, to the independent um, repair shop, if they can have access to the data while the car is driving, first they can better know what's wrong with the car because they can diagnose it in real time um, while the vehicle is driving. They can then, when the, the, with that data, they can order the correct parts, software, and anything else they need to repair their car properly and possibly have that motorist in and out of their shop much quicker and, and, um, and more effectively diagnosing and repairing the car. So there's definitely a lot of, of, um, of benefits to having that data. And, and really what we're looking for from our part of the industry is really just the data to repair the car. We don't, we're not really looking for huge amounts of personal data of how people drive. We just need to know what, how that car is operating, what's wrong with it, so we can um, you know, prepare the pr- proper fix and do it quickly when the motorist comes into the shop. So you know, that's basically what we want. But owners might, be inter- owners might be interested in all that other data, right? Sure. They should be able to have that data if they want it as well. Um, it, it, and there should be, there obviously has to be cybersecurity protections. And we've been working very closely with technical experts to develop um, a means for that data to be shared cybersecurely so that not only is the data protected within the vehicle, but the data, you know who has the data and so there's some certainty that trusted entities are the only ones that can obtain access. In other words, who the motorist wants to do, or the owner wants to do business with. And so that trusted entity gets access to the data that they need, but not access to all the other data that could be collected from that vehicle. So both the motorist is protected or the owner is protected, and the shop's only getting what they need to perform the repairs for that vehicle. So I think this is really protecting privacy and also providing it in a cybersecure way. Have you, do you know or do they make any attestations about how they steps they take to secure the data right now, absent the uh, requirement to share it? Well, the problem right now is every manufacturer is pursuing their own cybersecurity protection for their vehicle. They're designing different systems 
and there's no standardization. We really don't know what they're doing. And so basically that means that every manufacturer will provide a different way for us obtaining data from those vehicles. And what they're pushing in, in Europe and what, we, what they're probably expect to push here is what we call the extended vehicle. What, what they'll do is they require us to go to their cloud and then under whatever terms they, they dictate, we'll be able to obtain data for a vehicle. So you as a car owner bring it to an independent shop. That shop then has to go to the manufacturer's cloud, download, uh, pay to have access to that owner's vehicle to repair it. Now, how fair is it for a car owner who spent, you know, thirty to forty thousand dollars for a car, to then suddenly have to pay, to have to have their chosen service provider then pay for access to that same, that data that they generated from their vehicle in order to make sure that car can be repaired properly? It, it, this is a system we're moving towards, and it gives the manufacturers that makes them the gatekeeper for the vehicle. You're listening to the Security Ledger Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by LastPass. For more than 47,000 businesses of all sizes, LastPass reduces friction for employees while increasing control and visibility for IT with an access solution that's easy to manage and effortless to use. From single sign-on and password management to adaptive authentication, LastPass gives superior control to IT and frictionless access to users. Check it out at LastPass.com. Dot com. And it kind of seems like rent seeking too, right? I mean, what what's the value of having them, you know, make you pay to access the data? They're not providing any value to you. It's just sort of extracting more money from you. That's right. That's right. And they're also restricting innovation. So mainly what they're doing is they're becoming sort of, let's say you had an iPhone and that iPhone only had Apple apps that they developed, no apps from anybody else that were developed. They had to be from Apple itself and that they weren't opening the system up to anyone else to be part of it. So General Motors now becomes the sole provider for whatever that car owner wants. And so you're under their their direction as to what you, what available services and who can repair on those cars that they prescribe. And so that's the problem. What we're mm-hmm. saying is let's, let's allow for competition and for innovation to provide services and diagnostic work for car owners. And let's not, you know, let make the manufacturer the be all end all of that because that's never worked in, in any environment. It really competition is always benefited both the the manufacturer of that device and the owners of that device because it makes it more those devices more desirable and more useful to them. So I'm talking to you from Boston, Massachusetts, and I know you were just up here uh, recently. You know, here in Massachusetts, we passed an auto right to repair bill, and and I was under the impression that that already guaranteed owners and independent repair shops access to the car data. So what what's changed, and why do we now need this expanded law? Well, unfortunately, the manufacturers um, put a provision in there that ex- that exempted um, wireless data. So while, yes, we do have access to the, the repair data that we need to offboard from the manufacturer, but the access to the diagnostic device on the car and to the data that's generated by that vehicle, if it's generated wirelessly, is no longer, uh, is not mandated by the act. So what we're doing is we're updating the right to repair law to make sure that data, whether it's wired or wirelessly being provided, is accessible to independent repair shops directly from the vehicle if the customer wants them to have it and it's done cyber securely. So that's that's the law, the bill that's being um, that's been introduced in the state legislature there. Um, 
There is also a ballot question that's being that's out for signature right now uh, yeah. that would that would do the same thing. And our hope is that obviously we'd love to see the legislature act, so we don't we don't have to go to a ballot question. But you know, the people need, are the ones they they spoke up back in 2012 with the ballot question, 86 to 14 percent, that they wanted a choice in where their cars were repaired. And so now, you know, with the, with technology changing, this. This new law will, will now ensure that they have they continue to have competition in repair of their vehicle, even with the new technology on the car. So you're doing this uh, public service announced uh, campaign, your car, your data, your choice. Uh, t- talk about that. Sure. That's that's a national campaign. And what we're really trying to do is to educate the motoring public about this, the importance of this issue, both to you know, to their, to their vehicle and, you know, to their privacy. So that they haven't, they know that their car is generating data and they can, and that they should demand that they have, first of all, knowledge of it and then control of the data that they're generating from their vehicle. So yeah, they, um, I urge them to go to the Your Car, Your Data website and, and just take a look and see. It has a lot of good information and it has a petition yeah. that they can sign. And, and we're hopeful to have a federal bill introduced as well. Sometime in the not-too-distant future, we're working on Capitol Hill with um, legislators to try to make that happen. And hopefully in the not-too-distant future, we'll have a federal bill as well as a state bill. I know with the with the first right-to-repair law that, in essence, OEMs, car makers, basically recognize it nationally, signed a memorandum of understanding, just because they didn't want to have to comply. Would, do you expect the same thing might happen again if it were to pass in Massachusetts? Well, we would hope that there'd be a, there'll be a national agreement. We really wanted a, an agreement with them in the first place. We thought it was in their best interest to come up with a national scheme on right to repair for wireless data, but they have refused to discuss it with us. And so that's the only reason we felt we needed to go the legislative route. But yeah, our hope is that if we do, when we get it enacted in Massachusetts, that it will then become a national MOU or part of the national MOU that we already have on right to repair in, in, uh, in the U.S. It, it is funny. I mean, consumers generally just are not th- that aware of how the data they generate through any of these devices, cars, smartphones, what have you, is being collected and used. I mean, I think people have fears or misgivings. Um, I mean, they're, they're aware enough to know that it is being looked at and analyzed and so on. But I don't think folks have a clear sense of what they can do about it for, for the reasons we discuss, which is, you know, you buy these devices, the license agreement is part of the conditions for yeah. using the device. And that's kind of the beginning and ending of it. I mean, you don't really have the ability to refuse. Right. And it shouldn't, it should, it shouldn't be a choice of whether you buy the car or don't buy the car. It should be a choice of who should have access to the data, who shouldn't have access to the data. And, and, and you should have some right to have control and knowledge of that data. So you know, we, we strongly believe the car owner should be the, the center point of this, of this. It's always worked well for, you know, car owners in this country have always had a choice. They've always had competition. And I think it's worked well for the owners. It's worked well, obviously, for our industry. But in the end, the manufacturers have been able to have more satisfied consumers because of that. And now we're kind of we're rapidly approaching a point where that could that could change and this is the time we need to act to try to make sure that that changes. You have the your car, your data, your choice. Is the law clear that it is our data, that we it, we generate it, that it belongs to us, and that we therefore should have be able to exert some control over how it's used? No. 
it's not clear at all. I think uh, the, you know the whole the whole issue of data ownership, control, access is just very unclear in this country. Um, I think it's a little clearer in Europe where they have uh, their privacy laws, but even there, there's a big discussion going on about data access. Um, I think they are looking to try to make sure there's competition, but they're struggling about how to do that um, properly. But it, the law in this country is very unclear uh, about that. And I think that that's something that Congress needs to address. You know, we've already heard lots of different issues with Facebook and Google. We need to look at the whole data issue and make sure there's some clearer guidelines and better protections for consumers. What are the next steps for Auto Care Association and uh, this campaign to give owners and independent repair folks access to wireless uh, telematic data, car data? Well, if you live in Massachusetts... I do. Yeah, you do. Sign the petition to make sure it's on the ballot. Where can I sign the petition? I'm a, I, I want to sign it, but I... I it's probably in front of your local Dunkin' Donuts. I don't know. Um, not to make a plug for Dunkin' Donuts. Okay. But, Which one? We've got four here. <laughs> um, you know, there's well, the, the petitions are out there. We've already gathered a huge amount of signatures. I'm, I'm amazed at how much support there is. I guess I'm not amazed, but it's great to see it. Yeah. Um, I, I urge everybody to write their legislator and urge them to take action and not require this to be a ballot question because obviously that will be very confrontational, but the legislature should act. This is an important issue to Massachusetts voters. The legislature can act on this before it goes to a ballot question. So I urge them to to write their legislator. Um, And if they're outside of Massachusetts, sign our petition on your part of your data and also write your legislator and urge them to support it. I think um, there's a lot of legislators are starting to understand this issue, but it's a long way from being really well known. In, in Congress. And, and while we're working to change that, any help would be useful. So, Aaron Lowe of the Auto Care Association, thanks so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. Thank you. Ryan. Um, thank you very much. Aaron Lowe is the Senior Vice President for Government Affairs at the Auto Care Association. Up next, the latest State of the Password report released by LastPass, a division of LogMeIn, has some good news. Use of multi-factor authentication is increasing steadily out there in the business world, up more than 10% over last year. But not all the news is good. Today, still, less than 50% of businesses are employing a single sign-on solution. And employees at businesses large and small still struggle to stay on top of their passwords and keep their accounts secure. A severe password gap seems to exist as well. At small businesses, employees may have to manage up to 85 different passwords per employee, but at larger firms, that number is much smaller, just 25 passwords per employee. To understand why and how companies struggle with password security, we were joined by Dan DeMichael, the Vice President of Products in the Identity and Access Management Unit at LogMeIn. In this conversation, Dan and I talk about the challenges that companies face, including rampant password sharing and the use of weak passwords. To start off, I asked Dan to talk about the link between insider threat attacks and weak authentication. My name is Dan DeMichael. I'm the Vice President of Product for our Identity and Access Management Business Unit at LogMeIn. So LastPass is a password management solution. We have roughly about 60,000 uh, companies that are using it. We have a, over 100 different policies that people can use to manage passwords across the organization. And just recently, we rolled out uh, a new solution that um, comprises of our SSO and MFA products. Dan, 
You guys have data that suggests that around 60% of cyber attacks that organizations face are linked in some ways to insider threats uh, and that companies have a really hard time detecting insider threats and insider-based attacks. Um, talk just a little bit about, um, first of all, what we're talking about when we talk about insider threat and insider uh, attacks. Are these like rogue employees? And also, why is it so difficult for companies to identify these things when they're happening? Yeah, so typically they are related to rogue employees. I would say that the the biggest culprit uh, is, is around password hygiene. So oftentimes companies will share passwords across different accounts and or they'll leave things um, less secure. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but people write passwords on sticky notes and leave them <laughs> around their office. So there's just a number of things that where we see that passwords are kind of key to that whole threat of a cyber attack. It's interesting because, you know, we all know about like what sloppy personal password hygiene looks like, right? Like your parents who write their passwords down on sticky notes and put them on the computer monitor or, or just use the same password for every single account. And, you know, some of us might do this in our personal lives. Is that, I mean, we all like to think like, well, in corporate America, things are different, but it sounds like actually not so different, right? Probably more similar than different. I would say it's very similar. Uh, and especially when you're sharing accounts a lot more. I mean, I guess a lot of people probably share Netflix or something like that uh, with some of their family members, but like that, this, you know, sharing passwords across, like in marketing, sharing passwords across Twitter accounts is very common. Uh, my friend just joined a startup. It was, you know, there's about 40 people. He said, there's just passwords and sticky notes <laughs> everywhere <laughs> across the company. Like, so that kind of, um, it, it's the password hygiene there is bad. And then, and then just creating passwords that are, you know, very secure is also bad. You know, so one of the things LastPass does is provides you a security check score. That's what that's for their, both their personal and business. But the idea is to really take a look at how strong your passwords are. Um, and, and I don't know if you, Paul personally use a password manager, but once, you know, one of the, one of the things we do is we provide people to generate you know, random passwords. And once they've generated these passwords and they're stored in their vault, like I don't even know any of my passwords anymore. Right. So you need strong password hygiene, but increasingly also, you know, you, you can't rely solely on even a strong password, right? No, you can't. And like, so passwords aren't enough. And that's also one of the things that we realized as we were um, building our product, right? So we, we've recently launched this no, new SSO solution as well as um, our MFA solution to really provide a more secure way of either accessing systems or, or, or providing another level of security through multi-factor authentication. Okay. And let's just acronym alert here. So SSO, single sign-on and MFA, multi-factor authentication. Yes. Could you define just for the, we have a pretty technical audience, but who knows? There might be people listening who, who those are new terms to them. So it's a single sign-on and what does that mean? And, and then with multi-factor, what are we talking about when we talk about multi-factor? Yeah. So on the single sign-on piece, so that's typically a lot of applications will provide um, a SAML or an OAuth. And I know that that's getting a little bit more technical too, but just think about it as like a, a means to automatically connect into a third-party application, right? And then you don't need a password in that mm -hmm. event. The, the password is being kind of handled through that that uh, communication with those endpoints. Programmatically, so, right, right. Programmatically, right. And so then a lot of the companies will set up, like you have like a portal page of sorts where you would go into first and then you would 
um, you'd have the connected application and you just click on a button and that would automatically log you in because you've already logged into that portal. And so then there's a kind of programmatically a connection to those other third party applications. So it removes the need for passwords. It removes the ability to kind of brute force into some of those applications. So that's, that's one piece, right? And then there's, um, you know, people often talk about two-factor authentication, which is really just mm-hmm. a password and then some other uh, token that you're, you're doing. Uh, you might have it on your phone. A lot of people do have it on your phone or it could just be like a, a code that's texted to you. Um, and then multi-factor is where you're kind of going even further beyond that, right? And so we, this, this incorporates a lot of biometrics into um, this authentication that we've kind of launched. So it is a mobile app and allows you to not just have these kind of contextual codes that you could do, but also your biometrics and or there's some hidden codes um, on the phone that's kind of tied to you and your personal personal use of, of that authentication. So multi as in more than two, right? That's correct. We talk about the value of two-factor or more specifically multi-factor authentication, but data you guys have, or at least data that's out there, suggests that this is a minority of companies that are actually using this for their employees. I think 45%, so less than half of companies have enabled some kind of two-factor or multi-factor authentication capability for their employees. Um what, why is this? Uh, why is this meeting resistance out there in the business world? Simply, I just think people don't want another layer of kind of accessing things. I mean, for us, we believe that um, that the extra layers super important to you know securing the identities of your employees for your organization. And so, what we're trying to do is make it easy as possible and as secure as possible at the same time to kind of provide that that level of additional security. You know, a lot of the companies that we have, we have sixty thousand companies. A lot of them I I'd characterize as kind of SMB companies, where from a maturity level they just haven't mm-hmm. necessarily adopted mm-hmm. this level of authentication. And that even comes to SSO as well. Mm-hmm. And I think some companies see, you know, we'll, we'll put added layers of security around uh, really important accounts, uh, domain administrator accounts and IT folk, um, but rank and file employees, we're not going to do it for them. Is that an acceptable sort of splitting the difference? I mean, I think of it from the sort of cyber, from the security journalist standpoint, which is, man, there are just so many hack stories that have to do with people getting a low level employee or users access and then elevating privileges and moving laterally and all this other stuff. So is it really one of these things where you can kind of cover half your bases and be okay, or does it need to be everyone? I mean, I think it needs to be everyone, but I mean, in terms of who you are providing privilege access to different um, systems, that's where you know, you want to be able to set up kind of shared credentials, but but lock them down to particular org- groups or, or people within the organization. Deprovisioning folks are getting rid of, you know, as, as employees leave either on their own or, or, or let go uh, or, you know, contractor relationships that uh, end, um, getting rid of access or depermissioning, deprivileging people uh, is a major problem. Uh, and companies... I guess the data would suggest are not very good at it. Um, why is that, and what what tools exist to kind of help them know? Oh, okay, this account is dormant, or this employee just had their last day on Friday, and so we need to actually revoke all this access and get rid of this user account. 
Yeah, well, if you think when you join an organization, um, you're going to have to be set up in all, all, all sorts of, of systems, right? So the IT departments have to set you up in the HR system. Maybe you, you, you have your sales system, you have your whatever accounting system, your reporting system, all these systems are different, right? There's not like one tool that fits everything. So provisioning them is one thing, but then when people leave, there's a whole series of things that have to be done to kind of deprovision them out of those systems. And so, you know, one of the things that we're working on and, and, and are aiming to um, provide to organizations in particular around those SMBs is, is the ability through identity to kind of provision and deprovision those, those users across those various systems. And these days, is IT teams just so overworked and generally understaffed, given that it's hard to find good technical people. How much of this bad practice do you think is comes down to just these teams being short-staffed and sort of overworked with a lot of other, you know, more urgent problems and the sort of password hygiene and password management, which is critical, but just kind of falls off the list? Yeah, I, I think we see companies and, and IT departments really wrangling with the trade-offs of, of kind of handling password-related issues or security-related issues within their organizations versus really trying to build something new or build features for their organizations that are going to that are going to bring it even further, and and I think that's where companies are, are really wrangling with that. And so, but by having a set of comprehensive tools, like uh, you know, whether it be just starting with password management or adding SSO, but certainly you know, bringing in a whole identity suite to provide your employees with a certain level of authentication and security, that that would then allow their IT departments to focus on things that really matter for them. So for like LastPass's customers, what does a typical rollout look like in terms of features and functionality? Does it start with the sort of password management or like how, do, how does it generally work? Yeah, it's all, well, for us, our bread and butter has been password management for a long time, right? Um, I'm, I, I also am a five-year uh, long pass, last pass customer. Yeah. You know, password management is, is where people start. Um, typically, you know, some organizations don't have SSO or MFA installed. Some might have it um, and we augment. But then from there, we're seeing a lot of people go into SSO, right? So you have, like, if you think about it, the passwords aren't going away. They will always be around. Even if you could connect SSO to every, I mean, SSO is not going to connect to every single application, right? You have a lot of homegrown applications you have to deal with. Um, but that's where password, but having a password manager that also tightly combines with an SSO platform so you can have everything in one place, like almost like a universal dashboard mm-hmm. of your passwords and single sign-on, that's, that's where people we see starting to move. And then, of course, multi-factor authentication is just another level, I would probably even say. Mm-hmm. So this is, so security ledger, we write a fair amount about internet of things and sort of this growing population of internet connected sensing devices, many of them consumer, right? But increasingly enterprise as well. Some of them kind of cross over. I mean, they present a security risk to organizations. Often they're sort of off the radar. How do you deal with those? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I mean, so right now we've obviously focused on the individual. Right, um, we're starting to work with other companies that might be, um, you know, building those devices mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, you, that you describe. And how do you provide identity and and making sure that those are secure, um, just as much as an individual, right? Because yeah. that that becomes uh, a big problem. Dan DeMichael from LastPass and LogMeIn, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. Well, thank you very much, Paul. And uh, I'm glad that you are a LastPass customer. (laughs) (laughs) So am I.
Dan DeMichael is the Vice President of Product for the Identity and Access Management Business Unit at the firm LogMeIn. You've been listening to the Security Ledger podcast. This podcast has been sponsored by LastPass. For more than 47,000 businesses of all sizes, LastPass reduces friction for employees while increasing control and visibility for IT with an access solution that's easy to manage and effortless to use. From single sign-on and password management to adaptive authentication, LastPass gives superior control to IT and frictionless access to users. Check it out at lastpass.com. Thank you.